So of course, there was the joke going around, every pastor is going to be talking about New Year's resolutions. And I couldn't help it. I still had to. So I know we are talking about New Year's resolutions, but I, I want to take a slightly different take on it because I want to ask you, question is to, to imagine, if I were to come to you and say, well, who's in charge of your resolutions? You'd be like, I am. Of course. I, I had a job years ago where I was told by one of the bosses, like, you need to have three personal three um, professional and three family goals on our desk by January 1st. They're like, what? You want nine? Like, those are my personal goals. Why do I have to tell those to you? It was just kind of weird. And, you know, a lot of us are like that. We don't like kings in our life. We're Americans. We got rid of the kings. And I think this is reflected very well in a line from Monty Python. I'm not giving complete endorsement of Monty Python, but it's very reflective King Arthur goes up to a castle, and many of you know this scene, and he says, I am your king. And a woman replies, well, I didn't vote for you. The king, Arthur, goes, you don't vote for kings. The woman says, well, then how'd you become king? And great music starts to play, and he says, the lady of the lake, her arm clad in the purest simmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, author, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I am your king. And a man interrupts, saying, Listen, strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords, is no basis for a, simp- a system of government. Like, that, that, that's the way we feel, right? Like, what, like divine right granted to a king? And yet, Jesus is king over everything, including our resolutions, because he is God, because he is our creator. He is not someone who just took the authority and defeated others. He is the one who made us. And I want to convince us this morning that Jesus is king over everyone and everything over the people who claim to be Christians and the people who claim to be Buddhists, over the people who claim to be righteous and those who claim to throw off all sense of morality in their lives. Jesus is king over all, and he's a good king. If you haven't already opened to Psalm 47, please do so in your Bibles. Psalm 47 is what we call a enthronement psalm. There are at least six psalms in the book of Psalms that have this focus of God being the king over the entire world. God is not just the God of my life and problems, as some of the Psalms seem to, they're very personal. God just is the God over my problems, but he is the God over the entire universe. Both are true. And what's interesting about this Psalm is it is written to the choir master, a Psalm of the sons of Korah. Remember from Psalm 42, the sons of Korah are descendants of the infamous Korah of Numbers 16, who went to Moses, the one who was assigned by God to be king, and says, Uh uh-uh. uh. Oh, I'm sorry, not king, but leader. He was assigned by God to be leader. And they went to Moses and said, No way, I could do a better job than you. Stand aside, Moses. I'm going to rule the people of Israel, along with all my other cohorts here. And God literally opens the ground from underneath his feet and consumes him in defeat because he dared stand up against God's leader. Now, Numbers 26, 11 says, the sons of Korah did not die and their descendants are now here serving in the temple 
and they are calling for all the nations to bow before Yahweh, to bow before that God in a way that their ancestor did not. And and I want to bring those little things out because that is in the inspired text. And it's a reminder to us that often Christians have dark spots in our history, whether it's our family history or your own personal life. You did things before you were saved, right, that were not good. And yet we can set our priorities with his kingdom goals and call others to do so, even if we have that dark spot in our past, right? That that doesn't negate it. Like, oh, well, I did this one thing wrong, so I can't ever set a standard for you. No, we can, based on what we are called to do now, because our calling comes from God's worth, not our perfect backgrounds. In here, this part is really broken up into two halves, and each half has a subsection. So we have four resolutions if you're taking notes. It's broken up verses one through four, and then that selah is in the middle, and then five through nine. So we're going to do verses one through two, three through four, five through seven, eight and nine, and try and get through it all. I believe I can do that. Um, The four resolutions that recognize Jesus as king. First one, verses one and two, is keep to the Christian faith. The first way we recognize Christ as king is to keep to the Christian faith. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. All people means every family. It's a Hebrew word for every kin, every clan, every group of family members. And they are to take, the, the, the word is literally, clap, is to push together the hands, the parts of your hands that have a cup in them. Like it's to clap. Clap with your hands. And verse two gives the reason. For Yahweh, the most high, is to be feared. The Most High is a name often given to God, used for Yahweh, El Yon. It is a divine title that focuses on him being the exalted ruler of the whole universe. So when Melchizedek is worshiping, he is worshiping the El Yon, the all-high God. He is God over all. And this God is one who should be feared. He is an awesome, terrifying, powerful God. And this brings up a really good reminder to us that a God God who is not worth being afraid of is a God not worth being worshipped. You get that? A God not worth being afraid of is a God not worth being worshipped. The essential element of the Christian faith requires us to see God as worthy and powerful. C.S. Lewis in his always just gives such a word picture that's so great, where he talks about us, his conversion towards Christianity. And he says, well, an impersonal God is well and good. I'm okay with the idea of God. A subjective God of beauty, truth, goodness inside our own hearts, better still. I like the subjective God. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband. Well, that is quite another matter, isn't it? 
There comes a moment, he says, when children are playing burglars, you know, cops and robbers at the time. They're running around, and suddenly they go, shh. And they're like, was that a real footstep we heard? And like the incoming step of a loving parent into your game, the question of whether you are afraid or happy depends on what you're doing, doesn't it? We learn throughout the Bible that fear is not a bad thing. Scripture continually tells us that fearing God is a blessing. In Psalm 34, verse 9 through 11, it says, Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Because it is only in a terrifying God that we find one who can fight for us. Uh, Kids, I'm thankful for you being in here on a communion Sunday or outside listening. And and the phrase is used often, but we got to remember God is bigger than the boogeyman. And and, and that's silly, but that is so helpful when you are terrified of the boogeyman, isn't it? Like God is bigger than your fears, children. For those who are not followers of Christ, I want you to know he is already your king and master. Often modern people, we misunderstand why God should tell me what I should be or how I should feel. Well, that's just the way I am. Like, who is God telling me to be different? But, but the problem is that ignores the fact that we're often influenced by things outside of us. There's this thing the world tries to tell us, oh, you need good self-esteem. People need to speak well of you and tell you how great you are. But the problem with that is as soon as we start relying upon good self-esteem, then suddenly we are captured by what people say nice about us or what we think they think about us or what we think about ourselves. We're captured by this idea and the culture influences that. There's always something that's telling us what is right and wrong. Instead, Every person needs to worship a God who is so terrifying, so powerful, that the only one who could please him is himself. Like, like, do I really want a God who's satisfied with my mere attempts of life? Like the good things, like, well, he knows my heart. Well, I know my heart too, and it's not that pretty all the time, is it? Especially Christmas. Family times, some of that tension brings out you know, maybe an emotion that we're not really proud of. And the great thing about God, the real God, is he became a man and died for our sins. We just celebrated that, the incarnation at Christmas. When God looks at a Christian then, he no longer sees the wrongs that you and I have done. He sees the good that Jesus did. And he freed us from the pressure of living up to the opinions of others so we can actually get about doing good work. To be a Christian means to only care about God's opinion, not ours, not others. And Christians, you know, I think part of we remember as we go into this, you don't need to say, well, I have decided to follow Jesus. I guess there's no turning back. No turning back. <sighs> but, but let's be honest, sometimes we, we do that, don't we? We're like, ah, I guess I gotta say no to this. I can't do that sin. I have to be at church uh, this time. In his great book called What's, What's Best Next, 
writer Matthew Perman, trying to talk about just putting order to our life, says, the purpose of life is not to worship Jesus whether you like it or not. Now, that's not it. The purpose of life is to do so gladly and with joy, to find our ultimate satisfaction in God, to follow Jesus because we want to, and we can't imagine doing anything else. This is the call in verse one and two, is to shout and praise because you are in awe. You cannot imagine singing for anyone else. We have to find our joyful praise in God. And joy can only happen if we have this second part. The second resolution in verses three through four is to identify yourself as unworthily loved. Identify yourself as unworthily loved. Verses three through four. He subdued peoples around us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. Think about what, what has God done that's so terrifying? Why is God worthy of fear? Because he subdued a bunch of nations and peoples. The word means to put down by force, to defeat with an army or military or strength. And, and the people then, you gotta imagine Israel is saying, God has put down nations, so nations praise God. And you think, what does it mean that God defeated a people under quote unquote us? Now, this is in parallel with verse four, the pride of Jacob, which means the glorious land that God gives to his people, the promised land. And, and we remember in your Bibles back in Genesis, Abraham was promised the land, but his children were sent to Egypt for 400 years to wait until the wickedness of the Canaanites was full. I remember the people of, of Canaan, when you read about them in the Bible, they were not like just oh yeah, they just have a different religion kind of people. These were people who murdered their children in child sacrifice, who abused their women in sexual acts of worship, who did all kinds of evils, who were fighting and killing among each other. God rescued his people from slavery. They were slaves in Egypt. He brought them across the land and then they brought them into the land and did victory after victory. And you see, verse four, he chose our heritage for us. Why did God choose Israel's heritage? Were they somehow better than all these Canaanites? Were they somehow better than Egypt? Absolutely not. In Deuteronomy, as they're coming out, God makes clear that he chose them because of his free grace and election. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 8, says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were of the fewest of people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 8. Israel worshiped the gods in Egypt. 
that they bowed down to those foreign gods. They fought him in the wilderness, and Pastor Yuri has been doing a great job on Sunday nights going through the book of Joshua. So if you haven't been listening, go on our website, um, or you can go to YouTube and, and click through those. But he's been showing they didn't even do a good job of actually obeying God's commands to wipe out the evil. They, they were getting sucked into some of that very evil that they were told to destroy. God doesn't love Israel because there's something great about Israel. God loved Israel because he chose to love Israel. And God's calling and election is never changed. Even in the New Testament, Paul is talking in Romans about how this call goes to all the people, to the Gentiles, to you. And he says, Romans eleven twenty eight. As regards to the gospel, they, being Israel, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for their gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. It is only the doctrine of election that makes the future for Israel make sense. It is only the doctrine of election that makes the Bible and Israel's continued perseverance make sense sense. And knowing that about God should actually make us very humble. As our church, we believe in the doctrines and we teach the doctrines of, of grace, that God elects his believers. And famously, the Calvinist preacher Charles Simeon in England came upon John Wesley one day. They were introduced in a meeting to one another. And Simeon goes up to John Wesley and says, sir, I understand you are called an Arminian. And I have sometimes be called a Calvinist. And therefore, I suppose we are to draw daggers and fight one another, right? He says, but before we begin combat, with your permission, I would like to ask you a few questions. Charles Wesley said, of course. Simeon says, sir, pray. Do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so dependent that you would never have thought turning to God if God had not put, you, put it into your heart? Wesley responded, Yes, I do see that. I am, I, I, I am a horrible sinner. A wretch, God saved a wretch like me, as he wrote. Simeon continued, And do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do? Do you look to salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Wesley responded, Yes, solely through Christ. They go on to say, talk about how would, do you believe that you would be preserved by God alone? Wesley says, yes, of course. Charles Simeon responds then, then sir, with your leave, I will put my dagger away for this is all my Calvinism. This is all my election. God's cho choosing us makes us humble. Now, we said it and you probably noticed in your Bible that Selah, that, that is a command throughout the Psalms to stop. It's probably where they would play a musical interlude and they would have us just quietly meditate for a second. And I think what we're supposed to meditate on is how the sons of Korah looked back at the victories that they had. And they knew that it was given to them because of God's love and choice and not because they were worthy of it. They aren't coming to the nations and saying, hey, we're so much better than you. They're saying, our God is better than your false gods. And that's the way it should be for us too. 
I quote it often because I need to quote it to my own soul. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. See, Christian, you must stop and reflect that you weren't chosen because God looked at you and was impressed. God didn't look at you and be like, oh, I know you're just so spiritually insightful. I'm going to open my Bible to you and you're going to see it and go, oh, and this person over here, man, he's a loser. He doesn't know anything. I'm, I'm going to ignore him. No, God chose the weak. He looked at you and said, you're worse. He looked at me and said, man, that guy is just trash. If anything good comes from him, people will say, praise the Lord. He loves making weak things be successful for his glory. And if you think about that, if we rejoice in that, it should affect our plans and our purposes for the year and for the day. If you were saved for God's glory, if any victory in your life is for God's glory, then don't you think your New Year's resolution should be for God's glory too? Jonathan Edwards, when he was... 17 years old, wrote a list of resolutions, which included the one, and resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the eternal world as I possibly can with all power, might, and vigor, and even vehemence that I am capable of. There's a lot of applications we could get from this. Um, but might I make one to the younger people of our church, is those of you who are trying to set the direction for your life and trying to make decisions. And I, I know often it's hard even to like, like especially those of you who are in school, like I got, I got just the next few weeks to plan. And then school lays it out for me. And my job is just for a few years, maybe, like here's what I want to do afterwards. My plans can change. Some of you are trying to get ready for college right now and you're trying to figure that out. And you're like, man, just plans are, are overwhelming. And youth has much time for joy, as Ecclesiastes 11 brings out. Like, you're supposed to rejoice in your youth. But don't get stuck on just focusing on what you're going to do tomorrow or next year or the next few years, but also for eternity. Well, parents, and I'd say grandparents, are essential to remind those who are behind them what is going to matter, not just in a few years but in millennium to come. Don't forget to remind people that what we do now matters for eternity. A 17-year-old, Jonathan Edwards, resolved to live for what bring him the most joy in the life to come, not even just now. The second half of this psalm focuses on praising God for bringing these promises to Abraham and that brings fruition and blessing to all the nations. And that truth should result in our third resolution. Third, verses five through seven, nurture a heart that sings. If you want to see Christ as king, you have to third, nurture a heart that sings. God has gone up with a shout. 
the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praise to God. Sing praises. Sing praise to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King over all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. Who are they singing about? God. God is the focus of their attention and life. And he uses the word Elohim, which is used in Genesis for the creator God. It is a plural of the word El, the name El, which is just God. And some people argue this indicates the fullness of his power. This is an all-powerful description of God. And it is God goes up. And there's two main interpretations of what it means for God to go up. Either he is going up in battle, and he is taking his place of kingship over all the nations, or second, having defeated every, all the nations, he returns to his heavenly throne in glory and victory. Either way, this is a statement of God being victorious. This is him defeating and winning. And as God acts, his people shout. They make a joyful noise. Verse 6 repeats it again. Sing praises, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises, sing, sing, sing. Notice, no excuses. No ifs, ands, or buts. Sing to Yahweh in song. Like geysers shoot up because pressure builds underneath the earth until it finally overwhelms the power of gravity and water pressure and shoots into the air. So people who see God shout out what he has done. One of the writers of one of the many songs we have sung here, Keith Getty, says, how we sing reveals what we think and feel about something. You think, Many of us will sing with some grit in a sports stadium or we'll, or we'll belt out happy birthday at a loved one's party. Our individual personalities, he writes, join together to make a collective personality and our individual grateful hearts come together as a church. That's why we sing together. God is king. All will honor him eventually as Philippians 2, we read in our call to worship, will do. The question is, will we obey in song? Songs teach us something. What's interesting is that word at the end of verse 7, sing praises with a psalm. It's not the same word, psalm, in the title at the beginning of verse 47. That's mizmor in verse 47. Here in verse 7, I'm sorry, in the title of, of 47, Verse 7, the, the word is maskil, which if we remember, means a song for importing wisdom. It says, sing a teaching song. Oh, we talked about many people dying this past year, and you may have known a man famous for making teaching songs. George Newall died November 30th at age 88 this year. He was the co-creator of Schoolhouse Rock that used many upbeat songs and kind of quirky cartoons to teach kids everything from grammar to science. And his boss once came to him and was complaining, man, all my kids know every song to Jimi Hendrix. They know the Rolling Stones, but they can't even do basic multiplication. So George came up with songs like, 
I'm just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill or Conjunction Junction, what's your function? And you guys probably know many of these. It became very popular because it taught. Those of you who are younger, go on YouTube, okay? Search Schoolhouse Rock. You gotta learn this. And, and I think this is important because what is the last sermon, like outline that you remember? What's the last sermon title you remember? And you can't look at today's. But if I say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that songs are powerful teaching tools, aren't they? They help us know God better. They help us praise God correctly. I, I was just talking with a man in our church this past week who's been working on just learning different worship songs, and he was saying how there was something amazing happened in the evening as he was going to sleep. Suddenly his mind, as it would wander, would wander to Worship songs. And the thing is, one of our goals in selecting songs at this church, and I would encourage you, one of your goals for selecting songs that you worship to are what do they teach about God? See, you, you might hear a Josh Groban song who just talks some beautiful songs. You're like, oh, I feel so lifted up. I feel that's amazing. And, you know, it could be good. But so is the Ave Maria. Ave Maria sung in Latin in many a Catholic church. It is a key song for their liturgy. And it says and translated, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. Amen. And I don't know if you've ever listened to the Ave Maria, but it is beautiful. It is moving and it is heretical. It is a lie that someone other than Jesus prays for us. That's just, that's just a, that's a horrible lie. And that's a burden upon poor Mary. Like Mary doesn't need that to do. Only Jesus can pray for us and help us now. And so my, my encouragement and my challenge to all of us is to think, what do my worship songs say? about God. Here in this worship song, they're even willing to speak about a hard truth of God conquering others. What do our songs sing about? You need to encourage your heart to sing songs that are truthful about Jesus's kingship. If Jesus is king, then we should be Christians. We should follow him. We should be those who do as he says. That should make us humble. Therefore, we should sing. But no one sings about something they love and then doesn't want to share it with others. And so the fourth and final point is if Jesus is king, you must gospelize all people, including yourself. Gospelize. I think evangelize, but like evangel translated into English is gospel, right? Gospelize. I had to come up with a G somehow, okay? Go with it. Gospel eyes, gospel eyes, all people, including yourself. Verse eight and nine. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He 
is highly exalted. Gospelize all people, including yourself. Share the good news to all people. Verse 8, once again, reminds us God reigns over the nations. This time he uses the Hebrew word goyim, which is translated Gentiles, meaning just the many nations. God is not just God over families. He is God over people groups. He is God over everything. He is real. He sits on a holy throne. His throne is unlike anyone else's because he is a real God. He is the king of kings. He is the prince of princes. He never does anything wrong. He is righteous. And in response to his kingship, the leaders of the many nations come together. You'll see that, verse 9. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. This, this is very important theologically and throughout your Bible. Because as the princes gather, they are fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. You can turn there if you want to, but in Genesis 12, we read one of the great promises given to the patriarch Abraham, that God is setting his trajectory for the whole Bible and indeed all of creation. In Genesis 12, verse 2 through 3, now I'll read verse 1 too. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house, leave all the peoples that you know, and go to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God makes an unconditional promise to Abraham that all the families of the world will be blessed. Now, some Christians, if you would for a second, just imagine, put on your theology thinking hats for just a second. Because some Christians who have a view called post-millennialism, post-millennialists believe that passages like the promise to Abraham and this one we are in Psalm 47 teach a golden age is coming. May I quote, a golden age of progress in the church age that affects every dimension of life, economics, social, cultural, political, Evil in all its many forms eventually will be reduced to a tiny proportion that Christian principles will be the rule, not the exception. It's called post-millennialism because in this great millennium of the church reigning supreme, then at the end of that, Christ returns and he enters into a kingdom who greets him happily because he is the king we have been waiting for. And this was very popular during the 20th century, especially like it seemed like Christianity was doing really well. World wars um, were not a thing at the beginning, and then they were defeated at the end. And we're like, hey, you know what? Maybe, especially after World War I, people were like, you know, the world's getting better. Everything's going to be good. Christianity is going to take over the whole world. And then we saw, oh, wait, it's still wicked. Today, it's again becoming very popular because people are like, I want to do something. How do I do something about this God-forsaken world? Well, I'm going to be part of this group that brings about the kingdom. Now, I would argue, when you read through all the scriptures, that doesn't really fit well 
with the story of the Bible. In fact, this promise given to Abraham is still waiting fulfillment, even if we get a glimpse of it right now with Jesus in the church. Like we, sorry, get ahead of myself for a second. I, let's just think. For one, are the nations still at war with Jesus? Yeah. Even around here, I think if you were to say, hey, yeah, God bless you, most people would be like, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. You mentioned Jesus. Oh, you know, Jesus bless you. Or, oh yeah, I, I pray, in, I'm a Christian, I pray in Jesus' name. Then suddenly the gloves come out. Fighting begins. And, and if you've been reading through our Bible reading plan, you got to the end of Revelation, you might have seen Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, 15, Jesus shows up once again. And in Revelation 19, 15, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And then he sets up a thousand-year kingdom where he has defeated his enemies. So this promise of all the princes coming and bowing before him comes about during this millennium kingdom. Now, some people would argue, oh, wait, no, no, that's, that's after Jesus comes back when everyone is reigning. Again, you can turn there if you want to, but Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah is a prophecy about the end times. And in Zechariah 14, verse 17 and 18, it talks about a day where any of the families of the earth that does not go up to Jerusalem. So all the nations are coming together to worship God in Jerusalem, as this passage is saying. Zechariah 14, 17. If any families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if a family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain, for there shall be a plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. So the nations are worshiping Jesus. They're worshiping in Jerusalem, and yet there are still some who are not worshiping him. That's during the millennium. That's when things are good, but they're not perfect yet. And in fact, at the end of the millennium, we know Satan comes out and he's able to gather so many people. They number as the sands of the shore and they fight against God. That is why we think that this promise, this statement of the princes of the people gathering is not a statement of, oh, this is happening right now. This is a statement of this should happen and this will happen one day. This is a glimmer we have in the church, but not yet fulfilled. You know, in, in the midst of a depressed and discouraged world, we should be those who say, no, Jesus is king. When people say, I should be king, we go, no, 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 no. Jesus reigns. Abraham Kuyper who was the prime minister of the Netherlands between 1901 and 1905, was famous for saying, there is not a square inch over this whole human existence over which Jesus Christ does not say, mine. Jesus claims 
the right to every square inch of existence and life. And as his ambassadors, you and I are to say so as well. So Christians, do you see Jesus's lordship as being good news that it is? I know some often it's hard because we have to deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him. And it's hard. And yet we must remember we cannot be the bosses of our own lives. Sin dominates us, not just sin from within, and we often think of it that way, but also sin from without tempts us and draws us away. One writer says, forces outside individual persons, such as the lie of consumerism, it appeals to the base desires of human nature, and it exploits people by latching onto the human tendencies to greed, lust, envy, and excess. And you're like, but what's wrong with getting what I want? What's wrong with having a shopping spree to make myself happy? What's wrong in keeping the money that is mine? But this is the beauty of the gospel. See, sin is our desire to substitute anything in the place of God, often ourselves and our desires. But the gospel says God substituted himself in our place. If you believe that, you should seek to tell your children, your family, your neighbors, that Jesus is king overall, and he is a great king because he is a suffering king for you. Now, we summarize, and everything we've seen today is that Jesus is king, K-I-N-G. Keep the Christian faith by recognizing his lordship. Identify ourselves as unworthy, but chosen by God. Nurture in rich, solid songs about our Savior. And G, gospelize the people that this really is good news that Jesus reigns. Doing these things and building our lives on his kingship means what we do will matter forever. You think how often things are forgotten, how often people's memories are lost. But true freedom is found not in necessarily doing what we want, but doing something that matters, that lasts forever, that isn't just sucked up in the loss of the world. C.T. Sud, and you'll see him quoted in your bulletin there, wrote an amazing poem years ago. He said, when this bright world should tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The greatest part about Jesus being king is that what he says will happen will last. And when everything you've done is long forgotten, when it seems pointless and wasted, Christ the king will be preserving his work. So I encourage you, as you think through this next year, ask and prayerfully consider 
not just what do I want to do, but what does the king want me to do? What would honor him? What would, as the psalmist tells us to do, sing praises to his name? Let me pray. Lord, we pray that we would believe you are king. We know you are king, O Lord. So we pray that you would help us in our unbelief, in our distractions, in our worries, in our losses. We pray, Lord, as we go into this time of communion, Lord, that we would remember that this glorifies you. This is proclaiming to you our faith and to others that we believe you will return. So Lord, use it, I pray, to the glory of your name. And as many of us are distracted with the worries of the world and the problems and trying to figure out how we're even going to just do one more thing, Lord, may we believe that what you say will matter when everything else fades away. May we have the encouragement to tell others, Lord, that you are king. And if they follow you, Lord, there will be greater joy. There will be lasting joy. May we preach that to ourselves, even in this act of communion. For the glory of your name, Jesus Christ, amen.